Welcome to Keep You 100 Radio. I'm your host, Felicity Pointer, type 1 diabetic, certified health coach, personal trainer, and founder of Needles and Spoons Health and Wellness. Inside this podcast, you'll find the real and raw conversations around diabetes management, including the lessons that we don't learn in our endos office, my best tips and trainings, and conversations from the experts that I trust inside the community so that you can create more predictability in your diabetes management and feel empowered while doing so. Let's dive in. Hey, hey, welcome to the Keeping It 100 radio segment, Empowered Voices. I'm Valeria Garcia, certified health coach, type 1 diabetic, women's wellness coach and mentor inside Needles and Spoons, and alumni of our signature program, Keeping It 100. Inside this segment, I hold space and interview individuals, leaders, and supporters from the T1D community to share their story, journey, experiences, and wisdom to empower, inspire, and share their light. To find these conversations live, join us inside the T1D Judgment-Free Zone Facebook group. Hey, everyone. We're so excited to have you join us again on another episode of Empowered Voices. This is Val, and I'm so excited to have a friend and have Nora here to really share all of her story and what she's all about and what she's been up to the last couple months. Um, Today, we're going to talk about her being diagnosed as an adult, um, some of the challenges, what that, you know, how that changed her life and where she's at now living that van life and traveling all over the U.S. So Nora, if you want to introduce yourself, where you're at now and how long you've been diagnosed at this point. Yeah. Um, Hi, I'm Nora. Um, what did we do where I'm at now? Technically right, literally right now, I'm sitting in a rest stop in, I don't know where Ville, Arkansas. I'm about like a hundred miles east of Memphis. Um, so that's where I'm at. I I'm 35 now and I got diagnosed in April of 21 at 34. So I've been diagnosed for about a year and a half. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, with that, I'm like, I know it's, it's so crazy. So I always love to have people share their story at like the age that they're at, because it is different. We're at different stages at those ages in our life, right? Like you've already graduated college. You've been in your career. You've probably lived in multiple places or different countries. And now you're getting diagnosed with type one diabetes at this age and you're having to relearn living in a new, totally new way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, everybody's diagnosis story is different and unique to them. Like you said, like based on your age and where you're at and all of those things. And so for me, so my diagnosis story itself also a little bit different. Um, I kind of get the sense that most adults, when they get diagnosed, uh, it's because they go into DK, you know, like sometimes they're feeling the symptoms um, and they go in and get checked. Uh, but usually it's because it's gotten so bad, you know, cause as adults, you're just like, everything hurts. And then you just like ignore stuff until it gets really bad. Um, mine was a little different. I was dealing with rec- recurring UTIs and then like UTI like symptoms. And my gyno was like, bro, I don't know what, I don't know what's going on. And sent me to a urologist, um, to like, look into like, if I just had like a faulty urinary tract or what was going on. Um, and the PA came into the room and he was like, oh, they didn't put that you're diabetic on your chart. And I was like, mm, I'm not. And he was like, oh, well, so you should do some blood work because standard practice for them was checking the glucose in your urine. 
Um, and mine was elevated to the point that he was like, oh, she's a diabetic. So he knew before I did. Um, and I called a friend who does like concierge medicine and she used to do emergency medicine and was like, hey, uh, some doctor said this. Can you just like call in some labs for me? Which she did. Two days later, um, she called me and she was like, so you're super diabetic. Um, I think my A1C was like 10.4, something like that. My fasted was like 285. So like diabetic, right? Um, but because I was in my 30s, uh, you know, she was like, so I'm prescribing you metformin, like all the carbs in your house, throw them out. Um, in addition, she's a friend of mine. I'm a triathlete. She's a friend of mine from triathlon training. She was like, in addition to whatever exercise you're doing, walk 90 minutes a day. Um, and so uh, one of the things that I think factored in to my diagnosis was also this period. This is April of 21, right? So we have been in the pandemic for about a year. Um, and, you know, I followed sort of the, the mental health trajectory that most people did during the pandemic, which was the first three months you were like, yes the time I've always wanted to get stuff done. And then after three months, you're like, oh, we're, we're doing this forever. Cool. Um, let's like get depressed and watch all of the Netflix, which is what I did. I stopped exercising. I became unbelievably sedentary. Um, and so then when I first got misdiagnosed as a type two, um, there was like a lot of shame there. I was like, I did this to myself. Like, I let myself go and I, I got myself to this point that I've like given myself type two diabetes, which look in retrospect, I know not only do I not have type two, I know a lot more about type two. So like those issues are a separate thing, but, um, and so for a month until I got in, um, it took about a month. It took, I think two weeks to get me an appointment with an endo and then, uh, two weeks later is when we got the blood work back. And she had told me in the first uh, appointment when we chatted, she said, I'm going to be honest, like 50% chance based on what you're telling me, like how your lifestyle is that you have type one. Um, and so I remember huh, it was a Friday, it's like April 30th. And, uh, we had like a, I don't know, like a one 30 or 2 PM, like telehealth appointment. And I remember she was like, look, uh, here's the deal. Like you're a type one. Um, and, uh, she was, she was like, what do you have? I cried. Right. Like, cause that's heavy information. Um, and she was like, what do you have after 5 PM? And I was like, well, nothing now. Like my day just cleared up because like, I'm just going to be doing a lot of Googling, like not working for the rest of the day. She was like, look, they have us in these really tight telehealth appointment schedules and we only get half an hour can I call you at five? Because I want to talk you through this. And I was like, yes, absolutely. Um, and so she did. And she explained diabetes back and forth. She explained how you get it, how everything functions, how insulin functions, um, considering not just carbohydrates, but every other factor that's going to affect your blood sugar. And she spent like two hours on the phone with me. And I was good after that. I mean, like, you know, there's, there's obviously bad days and it was still really heavy news, but like when I had the information, I was like, okay, I can, I can do this. I'm empowered with all of the knowledge I need. So, um, yeah, that was getting diagnosed. Yeah. Fun. 
<laughs> I know. And I think, you know, even just hearing from, like you said, just like those early warning signs, same thing. They immediately were like, you're a type two. And then I was like, but Costa Rica said I'm a type one. And now America's saying I'm a type two. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. But I think it's awesome when there are people like that, like that doctor that took the time to sit with you and truly explain what was going on. And it just like takes, you know, it's such an, like you said, it's such an emotional, heavy conversation because you're going from someone who's just lived your whole entire life, you know, possibly without a chronic illness to now the rest of your life, you're going to have a chronic illness. And when someone tells you that, it's really in that moment, it's so hard to process. So those first voices in our diagnosis, I feel like really set the tone for the rest of the diagnosis until we can get to that point of empowerment. Because if you don't have it in the beginning, it takes some time to get there again, as long as you have like that right support, you know? So I'm so glad that you had someone, she did that with you. Because even, yeah, I met Nora in person while she was traveling with her van into California. And it was really cool to meet with someone similar to me who was diagnosed as an adult, but also someone that was already feeling so empowered in such like a short amount of time. And that was like so cool to see. And I was just been so happy for you. And it's true. I mean, you, you just, you know what you're doing, you feel confident in what you're doing and you're not afraid to do everything that you always have done. And I think that's just like a testament of who you are as a person. And it's really cool when I get to meet other people that just like live their life like that. Cause I was, I was like, I'm not, gonna like not do things like diabetes has to keep up with my lifestyle because I still want to do the things that I love and so this is going to come with me on the journey and that's what you're doing and I love it yeah yeah and that was exactly sort of my attitude about it um I think after that first long conversation with my endo I very quickly and I I don't know what it was about where I was at maybe I was just like so burnt out from the pandemic or my job or whatever but at that point I didn't assign any emotional weight to diabetes, I, frankly, because I just, I don't think I had it in me to like, I didn't have any emotions left. I was done. So it just was. And like, that sort of has always been how it's been since I got diagnosed. It just is. It's not good. It's not bad. You might have like a rough diabetes day, but I was like, it's the, it's now part of me. It's not, it's not something that was done to me. It's not this burden. It's not this, it is just part of who I am. It's part of my life. And it's been this process of being like, okay, like how do I do life with diabetes? Like, how do I, all right, like today I'm waking up and I'm doing life as a diabetic. So what does that mean? And how does that factor into my decision-making? And, and the answer is almost invariably, um, you can do all the same stuff. It just requires more planning and it's a little annoying. Like that's it. <laughs> that's diabetes. More planning, little annoying. Um, <laughs> some days it's like a lot annoying, but um, yeah. But yeah. I like that. I mean, it is. Yeah. I think, you know, it took me, yeah, that first year it was similar to you. Like I just had to learn as much as I could. And then I was like, all right, we're just going to go for it. And we're just going to learn as we go. And, you know, as a diabetic here today, six years, it's still that I'm still learning. I'm still just as a person, I think it's really easy to like, just hone in on the diabetes part as being difficult, but just as we evolve as people and expand and grow, like we're always learning, we're always going to be challenged no matter what. Um, So whether we have type one or not, like challenges still surface, things can be difficult. So it's just finding like, how do I stay grounded? Who are my support systems? And that's just like goes with 
all areas of life, but you're right. Diabetes is definitely on the ride. Um, so, okay. You've been diabetic for, yeah. How long is that now? I'm like, I can't do math. Yeah. (laughs) Like what is the math? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what was your biggest inspiration? Well, maybe go into what your job is and kind of like where you were at and then what got you to this place of sitting in a van talking to me at this moment? How did, how did we get here at the rest stop chatting about your journey? Um, yeah. So, uh, I, for the last eight years have been a public defender, which is, uh, just, it's heavy work. It is really, really stressful. I think it's, it's really important work. I think people who do it, you really have a calling for it. Um, you have to really care about it because otherwise it will break you. And even when you do care about it, it will break you. Um, and so, you know, I had have this really stressful, heavy job. Uh, and then the pandemic happened, um, which was hard on everybody. You know, I think it was a collective trauma that we don't really talk about. But um, but it was it. I mean, like it really exacerbated how sort of uh, how hard my job was because doing it remotely is nearly impossible. Caseloads shot through the roof. And then I got diagnosed uh, as a type one diabetic. And I was like, okay, well, that's it. I am, I can take on a lot, but this, that was like one thing too many. Um, and I think despite immediately having this understanding of how diabetes works and this desire to understand it and master it and like wake up and win at diabetes every day, which is kind of like, I grew up as an athlete, like that's where my brain goes. Um, uh, it was, there was an aspect of sort of confronting your own mortality and realizing that my body could betray me that I had to deal with and, um, and I needed a break. And I have always, I mean, always, for the last like over a decade at least, uh, I have dreamed about fan life. Um, and I know like everybody, Everybody follows the Instagram accounts or watches the YouTube videos, right? Like everybody does it. But I think um, certainly true. This is true of a lot of the other solo van life people I've met. Um, you do need some sort of trauma catalyst to get you in the van. <laughs> There's usually something. And frankly, like I meet other van life people. Um, and very quickly within the conversation, it's sort of like, so what traumatic event led you to move into a van? Um, and mine's like diabetes. Um, so yeah, so I bought the van October of 21 and started renovating it in January. And then I took six months off for my job, which ends this Friday, which is why I'm in a rest stop in Arkansas, trying to haul ass back to Florida. Um, so many hours of driving because the van plan did not go according to plan, but whatever. So that is, um, that is how I ended up finally pulling the trigger on this thing that has always been a dream of mine. Um, and I have, I have loved like being in the van. Like I could do this for a very long time. (laughs) I love being in the van. I love it. I know you look so like calm and like, that's your home. Um, I love that. That's so interesting. Look at it. It's beautiful. I was just showing my coworkers videos of her van today because it's so cute inside. Um, 
Yeah. I think that's so interesting. Like you said, like sometimes there is like a traumatic event or just like some kind of an event that really like catapults us into like where we are. I would not be sitting here on a podcast as a woman's wellness health coach, if I was not a type one diabetic that had to happen in order for me to truly find like, what is my purpose? I always wanted to help people, but it's like, I needed a direction. Cause it's like, okay, I could help everyone, but I want to like get like this niche of people that I really want to support. And as someone who is a diabetic to serve and like help other diabetics, it's just something unique. That feeling is very fulfilling and very unique. So I love that. I was like, we should do a, an interview of all the people you meet on like van life and just hear what their stories are. Cause that's actually like pretty, I'm sure that'd be like really interesting conversations. Like what got you to where you are? Cause I agree. I've always wanted to go in a van. I've always wanted to do that. Like how cool is that to be on the road and like see the world? So I love it. It's great. It is great. Um, it didn't go according to plan, which, you know, um, I took, the trip was supposed to be five months. Um, I got about two months in and uh, my engine stopped engineing. This is just straight up broke. Um, and so, oh God, it was an absolute headache. Uh, I had to call around everywhere due to supply chain issues. No one had an engine. Basically, the short, like non-car person, me, version of explaining what happened is like, six cylinder engine one of the cylinders stopped doing its job apparently you need all six of them so um i needed functionally a new engine where all six cylinders would work um and you couldn't find an engine anywhere and then it was a matter of like calling everybody i knew to call their guy to see if somebody had a junkyard guy who had an engine like and i mean everywhere florida back on the east coast up and down the california coast because i was at the time i realized this i was in the bay area staying with diabetes friend who I met on Instagram, uh, who put me up because diabetes friends are the best. (laughs) Um, you put me up diabetes friends are the best. Um, so yeah. And then a friend of a friend of a friend, pretty sure had a guy with a garage in Santa Barbara that had an engine for me. And he was like, I have guys who have an engine. If you can get it down to Santa Barbara. So I gingerly drove the three and a half hours down to Santa Barbara. Um, we found out, I think like two weeks later, the engine they were going to sell us was also broken and they couldn't sell it to us. Um, and he was like, well, I could rebuild it. It would only take me a couple of weeks. And I was like, great. Um, uh, that ended up turning into a month and a half, almost two months. So, um, I spent a full month in Santa Barbara, which is a beautiful, amazing place that I'm obsessed with. And then I flew back home to hang out with my family for a month in DC where I did another bucket list item. As long as I was like missing out on this bucket list item, I biked um, the greater Allegheny passage, the gap trail, which runs from Pittsburgh to Cumberland, Maryland. It's like 190, 150 miles, something like that. And then it actually connects up to the CNO canal and you can bike all the way back to DC. But um, considering I was on like a rented bike and that had never done a bike packing trip before and had not been riding um four days of like back-to-back straight riding was like fine that was plenty (laughs) so um so I got that and then eventually got the call that the engine was finally done flew out to California and now I am rush driving back because I have to be back in my office on Friday morning so 
Oh my gosh. I feel like we could do like whole episodes on all of these situations, <laughs> but that's so amazing about the bike ride. I didn't realize your bike ride was that long. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, so yeah. cool. It's a, it's a rail to trail trail, which I love mm-hmm. rail to trail projects for like a host of reasons. They're really great. They're all over the country, but like all these abandoned railroads that we don't use anymore that have paths that go through places and they're away from roads which is really nice you don't have to depend with cars uh the gap trail as the you know canal trail none of them are paved so you have to do it like on a gravel bike or a mountain bike but um super doable you're just in nature for like days at a time and my phone usually has kind of garbage battery so i like I didn't want to run the risk of listening to headphones and having my phone die and having like no Dexcom numbers. So I was just, it was just like me and my thoughts on the bike for hours. It's great. Love it. Just prepping for Friday's work day. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so, okay. Tell us a little bit about the prep work before you started this trip. Like it could be prep work with just getting the van situated. And then also just like on the diabetes side of things, like, how did you prep? Like, how were you going to get supplies for the six months on the road? How much supplies did you have? What did that look like? And what was that planning piece? Because I'm so interested to know. I did tra- traveling in uh, Central South America, and it was very interesting because every country had different insulin brands. Every country had different. At that time, I was on finger pricks. They had different lancets different this i was like oh my god every country i felt like i had to buy a new whole new meter just to like use it for like the couple weeks i was in that country and it was i cried a lot on some benches outside of pharmacies because i was like what is happening but you know it was a good uh lesson learning for me <laughs> what is travel if not occasionally crying on a bench outside of a right that's right that's part of it um <laughs> so yeah so there was definitely prep that went into it. Um, I, so one of the main things I had to consider when building out the van. So a lot of people go to companies, but I built it out with friends. I didn't do any, like, I didn't do any of the electrical work because I know the things that I don't know and I'm not trying to die. Um, so like my, my licensed electrician friend did me a solid and did the electrical work, but, um, you know, planning out the fridge was obviously a main thing. I was like, where's my insulin going? How is it staying cold the whole time? Um, a lot of people, when they build out vans, they do 12 volt fridges. They're the type of fridges people have on boats. Uh, they, the difference is a 12 volt fridge is not constantly drawing energy off of an energy source. It draws it when it needs it. Um, which is great. It uses less energy. Uh, 12 volt fridges are insanely expensive. And I'm talking like, like a 12 volt dorm fridge is like $1,300. Um, and then even if I was like, was like, well, I'm a diabetic. Like, I'm just going to, you know, like sack up and get the expensive fridge. You couldn't find them. It was like one of the weird victims of supply chain issues were 12 volt fridges. So um, I looked around, not a lot of people do regular ass dorm fridges, but some people do. And I read up everything I could. Um, and so for like 120 bucks, I got like a dorm fridge. Um, and it meant that, um, I have a lot of power. So I have 400 Watts of solar on my roof that runs through a 3000 watt inverter feeding two um, AGM batteries. That's all a bunch of like weird 
technical talk, but it means I have a lot of reserve power because a dorm fridge, which is an 110 volt fridge, is just a constant, it just pulls power on a regular interval. And so I needed to make sure um, I that my batteries always had juice in them. Um, and so I have solar power that comes in. Um, I have a DC to DC charger. What that means is it's connected to my alternator when my van is running. It, it's like a one direction current. It charges my batteries. And I also have shore power. So I can hook up like RVs hook up at like an actual RV spot. I've never done that. I don't even have the right plug for that, but like emergency situation, I can figure it out. And I'm constantly checking my energy. So, so yeah, so planning the fridge was one thing. Um, I, I always get as many supplies as I can. So like I made sure to stock up whenever I, so I'm MDI. I do injections. I'm not a pump person. We can talk about that. I have, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan that it kind of feels like the diabetes community, especially from the medical side is like constantly pushing pumps. And like, I'm a very happy MDI person, but separate issue. Anyway, um, whenever my insulin prescription is ready, I pick it up and like, it is for more insulin pens than I use. And I don't care. I pick it up. And I like, I, I stockpile in case of emergency this past spring, I believe people may remember there was like a moment that there was like an insulin shortage and I was not worried because I had reserves. I also am like connected to my local, um, mutual aid group. So like my insulin is never going to go to waste. It's not going to expire and get thrown out. Like if it's, anytime within six months of expiration, like it's going to go to somebody who can't afford insulin and is rationing, but separate conversation anyway. So, um, brought with me a ton of extra insulin. Um, and, and the nice thing about insulin test strips, needles, um, I was traveling in the United States. I can go to CVS anywhere and pick up my prescription. So that was the one thing that was, I was less worried about whenever any of those things were going to be up, I was going to be able to get them. Dexcoms. Now, um, nobody from Dex, anyone from Dexcom, just like earmuffs. Um, leading up to this, I reset my sensors as much as possible to max out having backup sensors because I'm on the road and like, look, the sensor fails. I can get Dexcom to send it to me, but that would mean getting it sent to somewhere. I know I'm going to be ideally is like a home address, like getting it sent to a friend, which I could have done. I had friends all over, but like, I wanted to be as covered as possible. Right. If your CGM fails, you can go to finger pricks. You know, I was hiking with a friend when I was back in DC and Harper's Ferry and I literally sweat off my Dexcom. That's never happened before. And so I was on, I didn't even actually, we were only out there for the night at her cabin. And so I didn't bring my glucometer because it was 24 hours and like, I wasn't thinking, um, but we were in West Virginia. So we went to a Walmart and I was able to get diabetes supplies because right. Like, of course. So, um, so yeah, so I, I came in with just extras of everything to be super covered. And then was very sure that my fridge was always going to be cold. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. Did you ever have um, any issues like at any of the places getting your supplies like ever? Or did everything just like run pretty smooth? Everything was fine. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I picked up insulin in a couple different states. It's not a problem. 
if you, I mean, like any major pharmacy, like CVS or Walgreens or whatever it is, it's just in their system. Oh, right. Okay. So they'll just like, they basically just like transfer it to their store and then they can give it to you if they have it. Um, Love it. Yeah. That was, that's the nice thing. I, all of my travel before this, cause I've traveled my whole life has primarily been out of the country. And this is one of the first times I've done extensive travel in the country. And that was frankly, like that was one of the main benefits. I was like, Oh, you know, like everything's in dollars and my pharmacy is in every state. So like, great. Like how can you for me? Um, so yeah, so that has worked out really well. Yeah, I know. Totally. I know. It's like such a game changer. The second you step into a new country, <laughs> it's like different. You know, I remember I was like in Mexico and I was like, well, I could just walk in and buy insulin for 12 bucks. Like, this is crazy. When I traveled, I was also on MDI. So, you know, it was interesting and to buy it in different places. Like, I don't know. It just felt so different to be able to walk in somewhere and I didn't need a prescription. Like I was like, Whoa, people could just buy insulin. Like it just was like mind blowing to me. And also just knowing like the process sometimes to get it here, whether you have insurance or not, sometimes has to go through some hoops for you to get your order or whatever it is. I was like, Whoa, but I love that you were able to get what you needed the whole time. And I think anyone out there wanting to do van life in the U S like pro tip right there. Like you can access things that you need on the road. And if you meet up with other type of diabetics, they can give you extra needles or any extra supplies. You know, I feel like that's the cool thing. I know when you were here, I was like, here, take these needles. I literally don't use them. Just have them. And you have the ones that I love. And I was like, sack and needles. Amazing. (laughs) Um, Okay. So what would you say has been your favorite part in all of this journey, I know your journey didn't necessarily go as planned. There was some like shifts here and there, but what has been like your favorite part of the experience so far? Oh God. Um, I just, I think my favorite thing about van life is before starting law school, between college and law school, I backpacked for about 12 months. I did Buenos Aires to Mexico city. I was on buses the whole time. Um, and I was, and I met up with friends and I made friends along the way, but I did that trip by myself, the same as this trip. I, so first thing, if anyone has not traveled alone and is thinking about it, travel alone, it's the best, like traveling alone is truly the best thing on the entire planet. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, and I loved that backpacking trip. It was amazing. It was one of the best times of my life. But the one thing that always kind of bothered me is I felt, um, I felt like really, entirely untethered. Like I just didn't have any space that was ever my own. You know, like the only space that's your own is your backpack, but like you're in a hostel every night, you're around other people, like the bathroom's not your own. And that's fine when you're like in your early twenties, but like I am in my mid thirties, which terrifies me. And I'm not, I'm not fully accepted, but to some extent there are aspects of it that like, I, I could probably do that again. I don't know if I would want to do a trip exactly like that again, the thing about van life, you get to go anywhere and everywhere and you get to be on the road and do a proper road trip and go to national parks or see cities or whatever. And then you are in your bed every night and it is like your little home. And it just, I know that seems like very simple, but actually living that concept is, was so wild to me. I was just like, this is, this is exactly what I want. I can go anywhere I want and always be home. And that to me is probably 
that is my favorite thing. I've seen really cool things. I've met really cool people. Um, and you just get to travel this like very awesome country and have all these cool experiences and sleep in your own bed every night. It's the best. Can't so. be, I know you cannot be sleeping in your own bed. I feel like once you get your mid twenties and up, it's like you want your own bed. I totally agree with that. I tried, well, more recently, I tried to like stay in a hostel somewhere and like, I couldn't be in like the group areas anymore. I was like, I need a private room everywhere I went. I was like, how did I do this before when I was like 24, 25? Like now it's like, yeah, having your own space totally makes a difference. And I love the way you put it, like having your home everywhere you go. And I feel like just in our regular day to day, we can't do that, right? Like we leave yeah. and anywhere we travel to, we're always going to sleep somewhere that's not our home or it's not our bed. So I think that's like such a special thing that I didn't even think about in that way. Cause I actually haven't done this before, <laughs> but that's amazing. Loved your favorite part. Love that you got to be in your home everywhere you went. I think that's special. And I also love, and also want to highlight the part where you said everyone travel alone. I agree. When I started traveling alone, I met this older woman in an airport. I don't even know what country she came up to me and asked me if I was traveling by myself. And I said, yes. And she just looked at me and said, I'm so proud of you. Like, this is the most beautiful gift that you'll ever give yourself. And when she said that to me, I was like, oh. but I've always thought that I was like, it was such a beautiful gift to give yourself because you are in every single situation fully, like authentically yourself in social <laughs> settings, where you're going to sleep. You're, you're on your toes because you're looking at where am I going to stay? Is this safe? You're constantly being challenged, but in a good way that's like healthy and really like helps you grow as a person. And then you're more likely to meet people because you're mm -hmm. not in your group or if you're traveling with like two friends, you usually just stay with your two friends. But in this sense, you meet people all over from all over the world. And I feel like you just make those genuine connections with people. And it's so special. It's really cool. Yeah. So cool. I know we got to meet. And that yeah. was awesome. See? Yeah. See, this is proof. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So that was your favorite. What has been your biggest, let's see, let's make it a diabetes challenge. Cause we know you had a challenge with your van and the engine and finding an engine, but was there any challenge along the road diabetes related at all in the last couple months how has that been honestly uh no, i mean look i i don't i haven't had worse challenges or worse days in any way being in the van than i did before being in the van like my worst lows before going into the, like my worst lows i think to date still have been like sitting on my couch at home and it's always every bad low I've ever had has always been a couple of exceptions, but always has been, I'm eating chips. I don't feel like measuring or weighing them. That's like the one time I get like slight, like pseudo diabetes burnout where I'm like, not weighing my chips, you know, which is dumb because um then i'm like i probably had like this many chips and then i inject insulin and then i almost die like every time so um weigh your chips so um but no i've had you know i've had lows in the van i've had highs in the van um i've had i've had highs while driving i have i've had lows while driving they're rare but i've had them um i keep my 
my decks range pretty narrow so that I get alerts quickly. And I don't play games with lows when I'm driving. If it is like dropping, like even if I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's going to steady out or like this decks has been a little sketchy, like I would rather run high. And that's just, you know, only when driving, but like just for safety, you know, like I'm not, I'm not going to risk it. So, um, yeah, so far diabetes has not been that. I mean, that was the thing I was about going into van life. I was just like, <laughs> diabetes makes everything harder. So like, I'm going to get into a van, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's not any worse than a van. So yeah. Yeah. So far that's been not, not a problem. Yeah. And Thankfully. yeah, I like, <laughs> I like the way you put it. It's so true. I think a lot of times I was thinking about this the other day, just talking with clients and stuff, you know, we can, it's easy to get caught up in like the lows and the highs, but at the end of the day, this is like our diagnosis, right? It is that it is this fluctuation and we're kind of on this tightrope going one way and the other way. And that is what our day-to-day is. And I think we forget that that is our diagnosis. That is what it means to be a type one diabetic and to just sit with that and be like, okay. And I agree, right? It's like, we always have this idea, like if we are somewhere else, the experience will be different, but you're right. <laughs> like those bad lows could be like literally in your couch where you have access to everything. Um, and it rarely happens when you're like on the road doing something really gnarly and you're like, well, it all worked out when I'm like jumping off this waterfall, blood sugar's great, you know? Yeah. So I love that. And I love just like the way you talk about it. Cause I think it's just a lot of people can relate to that of like, okay. But I also love, yeah, the lows when driving, this girl, you guys, has like all the snacks in the world. So many, she gave me so many low oh, snacks yeah. to try. I was like, ooh, ooh. I like went to Costco to buy them all. I was like, ooh, these are good low snacks. Cause I get so caught up in eating like the same low snacks all the time. Like, oh, my little packet of like applesauce that I always have. And then I'm like, wait, I need to switch this up, you know? No, there's like, there's two benefits to type one diabetes, two total. One, um, annual uh, lifetime national park pass by the way everybody get that it's free lifetime park pass but two is that treatment to keep you from dying is fun food sometimes like in moderation you're like 15 grams wait 15 minutes but 15 grams of whatever sugar you want so like you know keep it interesting or like find something that i feel like you have to goldilocks that one because I have found things I love. And then when, you know, when you have one of those crazy lows and you're trying to eat the whole kitchen, like when you eat a king size bag of like gummy worms, like you're just, that's, you're setting yourself up for like a rough night. But, um, you know, you want to find something that you like enough, um, but you won't overeat in like a moment of low crisis. Um, and then like switch it up because it gets really boring. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, I agree. Like finding, finding the ones that you love makes a difference. Cause I think, yeah, in the beginning I was just like, Oh, I'm just going to eat this cutie tangerine every time, you know? And then now I have all these fun snacks that I actually like, like, and it makes it more exciting in those moments. Cause yeah, I think it's easy to be like, Oh, like I'm, you're already like, Oh, I'm not really hungry maybe right now, but you want to make it at least something that you enjoy and something fun. But I like that. I like switching it up. You helped me get out of my same snack mode. Yeah. I was in my rut with the same low snacks and I was like, what the heck are other people eating out there in the world? <laughs> I need to switch mine up. <laughs> I also, sometimes I have a variety of types of low snacks based on the type of low I think I'm having. Um, so like I'm MDI, right? 
my um my basil will switch every so often by like one or two units but i can usually tell in the morning if i'm like just generally running higher generally running lower um but sometimes what that is meant is like i need to knock it down by a unit and i'm having like i'm just going to run a little low today and so it means my low snacks on a day like that are going to be like peanut butter pretzels because i want i need like a fat to be carrying that carb to like buoy me for the rest of the day where it's like, if I know I ate something, you know, I ordered at a restaurant and you're just like, we all straight up guess. You're like, it's going to be, I don't know, 60 grams of carbs, whatever. Um, and then the portion comes out and it's like wildly different. You're like, Oh, um, you know, depending on whether or not you realize that when the food comes out or when you've already gone low is how much like is how fast I need that low snack to kick in. So I don't know. I've developed my own like system of, variable low snacks based on what my low situation is to try and like offset it. Cause like, I don't know. I see people who've like <sighs> way overshot, like they, they overshot basil or they've been running low all day and then they keep going back to juice. And I'm like, juice is just going to shoot you up, but it's not going to keep you. Like if, if you're looking at a sustained low, you need a sustained lift. But, um, so yeah. I love love that science with Nora. No. Yeah. 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 That's, that's totally, I know when I, when I first did keeping it 100, that was like the biggest game changer for me was like learning the different macronutrients of food and what they really do to our blood sugar. Cause you're right. I was having that issue all the time. (laughs) I was like, I remember I was with Lissy in a call and I was like, yeah, you know, I keep drinking orange juice and I keep going low. And she's like, Oh, Add like a half a protein bar or like some protein, some fat in there and see what happens. Literally changed my life in that moment. Just learning that, you know, but again, not necessarily as someone sitting with us all the time and having that conversation. So it can take some time, but I agree. There's like different groups of snacks that we need at different moments, depending on like what the activity is, what the variable is. That's great. Um, Okay. So I know you shared a little bit of your bike ride. Do you want to share like kind of what training cycling look like on the road? Cause I know we have some listeners who love biking, love to cycle. Um, so I think it would be awesome if you can share that piece. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things when I built at the van, um, I am in the largest like cargo van that Ford makes. It's a high roof extended length Ford. So it's, um, she big. Um, and I specifically did that because I knew the way I wanted to build it out is in my like garage space or the space under my bed. Um, I have a slide out drawer that has two bikes on it. I brought two of my three bikes. So I have my gravel bike, which doubles as a road bike. And I have my triathlon bike. Um, because part of wanting to do this was not just travel, but travel and do the things that I love and travel. Isn't just travel for me, at least is not just Um, you know, it's not just tourist destinations and it's not just walking around, it's hiking, it's biking, it's swimming where I can, it's running where I can. Um, and a lot of, a lot of things that were supposed to be part of the trip. Um, I had a couple of races, um, on the schedule, two gravel rides and a, and a half Ironman, uh, none of which are happening due to the engine braking. So that's really fun. But, um, and so the plan was to also keep training and riding. Um, and that's been, you know, I, I think because I knew, I knew in my head what this van was going to look like and how it was going to be set up before I built it. 
I knew I was going to have that. Um, I, like I knew it was going to be an easy setup. And so it took me a little while, like everything in the van, just like diabetes was like a stiff learning curve and everything felt uncomfortable at first. And then like you get used to it. Um, so like for the first few weeks, like just driving this massive vehicle, which honestly I had to learn is like a sail on wheels. Like if there's any wind, I am like all over the highway. <laughs> it's such a disaster. Um, but I had to get used to like driving it. I had to get used to sleeping in it. And then I had to get used to like pulling out my bikes and building them and going on rides. But um, yeah, it's been, it's been really nice to have that because traveling with a bike is often an absolute hassle. It's expensive and it's not like logistically really complicated, but uh, I have all, I have everything I need in this van. I've got insulin. I've got bikes. Like, I don't know what else I need. (laughs) You're like food, bed, (laughs) bike, insulin. We're good. That's it. Yeah. Like those are my, those, that's my checklist for life. I don't really need anything else. So um yeah so that's <laughs> little good. things man um okay so is there any like tips or advice that you would give someone who's looking to do something like this or just like looking at long-term travel in general as a type one diabetic any advice or any tips that you would have for them um like go for it <laughs> just like super go for it that's my that's my tip um there are there are very few things we actually cannot do as type one diabetics, like very few. And frankly, even some of the things on that list are just because somebody made a rule, but you could probably do it. Um, so generally you can just ignore that list. There's pretty much nothing you can't do as a type one diabetic. And everything you do as a type one diabetic is going to be a little bit more annoying because of diabetes. Literally eating chips on my couch is annoying because of diabetes. So if that's going to be the case, then I'm going to do all of the things that I want and I'm going to do all of the travel that I want. Um, and so, yeah, if you're thinking about it, just go for it. Um, if specifically you're thinking about van life, uh, you can reach out to me. I am like happy to talk to people about van life. It is something that does take like at least a lot of time in terms of planning and logistics for the type of van you want, how you want it built, what your timeline is, what your budget is, like all of that stuff. Um, which like, I like very happily nerded out on for like almost a full year because, um, cause I loved it. So I've like done some of that work. I can save people the hassle. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Absolutely travel. Also, um, I, I've used like a bunch of different, like on the, on the bike packing trip, for example, I'd never done that before. I never biked like point to point all day long by myself, all of that. And so I had to think through like, what does that look like? What do I need to be carrying with me? And like, also what is my safest plan for biking through like rural wooded Pennsylvania with my insulin? Right. So I, um, uh, and so my plan to solve that was just like, I tried everything. So I had, I had a Frio pouch and a VV cap and like a hydro flask with an ice thing in it. So I had like my insulin and a bunch of different things because I was like, I don't know what's going to work. And I, and I need a backup plan. Um, but, uh, but it was fine. Literally my insulin was fine the whole time. I had everything I needed the whole time. I think it's like over prepare and over plan and have backups. and then go do the thing. That's sort of, that's it. That's my, that's my new travel motto. Oh, like, do the damn thing. 
do the damn thing. Like have all your shit planned out. Like I knew, for example, if I was going to be on the road longer, um, I have a friend subletting my place. She took, you know, my deck supplies came in because like that's on a timer and Lord knows sometimes like twice a year I have to fight with them that I still have diabetes and I still have to send me the thing. Um, and so she has my, my like latest shipment that came in. And if I was going to stay on the road longer, she could send it to me. I have other diabetes friends at home who were like, if you need us to send you Dexcom supplies, like let us know. And then, you know, I have a network of lovely diabetes friends that like, if there were a thing, depending on where I am, you know, like I, because of the amazing internet, I know like diabetics all over. So, um, plan and then, you know, like over plan so that you can enjoy. I love that. Yeah. And I agree. I think always thinking safe in general, right. When you're traveling, I think the cool thing with like this day and age is that we do have so much access to technology or to just like tell people where we are, you know, like, Hey, Mm -hmm mom, friend, partner, whatever, like, I'm going to be doing this. It should take this many days. Like if you don't hear from me, I think like having that can give a lot of peace of mind too. Um, but I love that you were not afraid or you didn't let fear guide you in doing something new as you were already doing something new. Like you were already doing something new by being in a van traveling to maybe States you've never been to, or at least haven't been to those parts. And then you're trying something new on top of that, like backpacking, biking, I think, it's beautiful. And I'm proud of you. I love it. I love hearing your story. Yeah. Um, okay. And then I have a question for you. So now that you're at this point, you're like getting to the end, you're going back to your job. Like, how would you say this experience or this journey has just impacted you as a person just in general? Um, it allowed me the space I really needed. I was at a pretty severe level of burnout, which I think is more to do with my job, um, than anything else, but like diabetes, is definitely a factor also like learning about how to be a diabetic, how to be a diabetic at work, how to be a diabetic while trying a case in front of a jury. That's like a whole thing. Um, but, um, it gave me the space to really think about, um, sort of what I may want to do do moving forward, um, uh, which may involve a career shift. I'm not entirely sure. It may involve a move. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think, I think when you deal with, uh, something that does kind of make you confront your mortality and your aging and your body, um, and, you know, and you do have like a kind of understandable existential crisis about it. Um, I think there's positive in that because it allowed, like I gave myself the space to step back and be like, okay, like what do I want to do with my life? (laughs) Um, I don't actually have an answer to that question yet. So like, I don't actually know how great that is because I'm still like, well, I don't know, but I got to be at work on Friday. So we're just going to figure it out from there. Um, But it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's definitely given me the space to start putting things in motion. And, and even if I don't know where I'm going, I know that I'm, I'm redirecting my ship. Yeah. 
There's nothing like feeling like so freshly like empowered and like when your energy and your headspace is clear like that to just go make big decisions. I can't tell you how many clients we've had who just by feeling more empowered in their diabetes management have shifted their career, started a family, just all these things that were sitting in this place where they weren't ready to make that move, but just feeling empowered in different areas of your life. It really is, you know, that ripple effect of going into other areas of our lives. And it's so cool. And I'm excited. I'm excited to see like, what's next for Nora? Like what's the next journey? What's the next trip? And yeah, it's all, it's all good stuff. And you know, you're going to go into it might feel different, might feel the same either way. Like, I think when you do something like what you just did, it just, again, shows you that I can literally do anything. You can literally do anything. Yeah. I think that's the best part. It's all possible. possible. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was was just thinking if there's anything like other, other deep thing I could say. If if um, there is anything else, like any advice, any words of wisdom that you want to share, this is your time or anything else that you wanted to mention that you didn't feel free. This is your time. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think creating like have talk to other diabetics, talk to strangers. Like I, I am one of those people. So I think there's a big, uh, noticeable difference. Um, I got lucky too. Like I got, I made diabetic friends in my own like local community and then met people online. But I think there's clearly a big difference between, um, I think people who are diagnosed more recently, maybe in the last like five, 10 years and people who are diagnosed maybe like 15, 20, 25 years ago. Um, because it's clear people, at, at least a lot of the diabetics I've met were diagnosed forever ago. Um, you know, one, there was, it seems like there was often not great advice, like not good endocrinology information, not good knowledge. People were get put on restrictive diets and then were, uh, uncomfortable or shamed about devices and stuff as they started coming out. Um, meeting more people who were diagnosed in the last five or 10 years. I love that people are like showing their Dexcoms, talking about diabetes, having it be a thing. I think it's been a shift for some people. Um, and, you know, other people haven't made that shift. So I just, I'm, I feel very happy that I got diagnosed at a time where one, we have all this technology, like, thank you, Dexcom, you saved my life um, constantly because I have like no low awareness. Um, and, but also at a time where like people are not, there's less of a stigma about it. People are not um, like afraid of their diabetes. People are really proud of their diabetes. Um, and there are these like great, online communities. Look, there's also some like trash online communities. So you'd have to kind of be discerning, but, um, so yeah, so I guess my advice is like, keep doing that, like be like, be a happy, proud out there diabetic. Um, like talk to other people with Dexcoms, like talk to people you see with pumps. It's how I've made a lot of my friends. And those are the friends that are really nice to have in the worst moments because nobody understands what we go through like other diabetics. Um, and so like you will, you just bond immediately with those people. Like literally like you and I met on Instagram, like we are friends. So, um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. My advice is, uh, have a diabetes network and, uh, go travel, get in a van, get on a plane, put stuff in a backpack. Like (laughs) you can figure it out. Like, you know how you're like, 
you need insulin and sugar. Like that's it. And some, like some way to measure your blood sugar. It's like, you can break it down to pretty simple. Um, and you can like make it happen. So it's, again, it's an annoyance, but it's an annoyance no matter where you are. So like, just do the thing. Yeah. I love that. I love that. That was great. (laughs) I know. I think someone told me recently something along those lines of, you know, we get caught up just like, even if you're like, Oh, I want to go back to college, but I'm not sure. Like I want to take this class. I don't know. I'm like already 30. Right. And then it's like, either way, you're going to be 30. So do what you want to do. Cause right. whether you do the class or not, you're still going to be 30. So you might as well just do what you want to do. Um, but I love what you mentioned just about just like on the last note, but just about how there is this like new age of type one diabetics in the sense that yeah. There are people that are super open. There's way more dialogue, way more conversations about type 1 diabetes, more people showing the lifestyle that they live with type 1 diabetes and showing a lot of what's like possible when you feel in control and when you feel empowered. And I think in general, just like having this new age in this new community, it is inspiring for, you know, other diabetics, people newly diagnosed, people who have diabetes for 20 years. Either way, it is inspiring. And in any sense, I always say like, you know, the hardest things that happen to us And whatever our journey was like, that can be a really good guide or just like something for someone else to see and get inspired. Right. So that's why I love this space to be able to have people share their story because we don't know who's listening. There might be someone listening right now who is planning to do something like this and they just need something or someone to talk to about it, to know that like, it's possible. These are the things I need to look for or look at. And it does, it changes lives when we share our story. So again, Nora, thank you so much for joining us. And it was really good to see you again. Um, yeah. Anyone who has questions, Nora has an Instagram. She has two Instagrams. Um, if you want to mention them here, feel free, but she's very sweet, awesome to talk to. And if you're interested in doing something like this, please reach out and either way we will connect you. And yeah, if you guys have any questions, let us know. And Nora, thank you so much. Safe travel back to Florida. Oh my God. I have so many more hours to drive, but yeah. um, Put my Instagram in the show notes, I guess it's N O R G A T O. You can uh, find me. um, And I'm like happy to chat with you about any, like, Hmm. Diabetes and van life, diabetes and triathlon, diabetes and gravel riding, diabetes and like being a lawyer, like any of these things, or just like, I don't know, cats, whatever. I don't care. (laughs) You're like, just let me know. (laughs) Awesome. Um, All right. Well, I'm going to go find a planet, which is where I shower and then go sleep in a Cracker Barrel parking lot. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Fan life, it's glamorous. Let me tell you, Love um, it. in prettier places, but um, this is a convenience thing. And like, also, I'm not knocking a Cracker Barrel, and I will defend Cracker Barrel to the death. Those biscuits are delicious, and they let you stay in their parking lots for free. So, just saying, good biscuits and parking lot spaces. Yeah. <laughs> that's 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 my main advice to listeners: Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Have a good rest of your day. And yeah, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.